This morning's reading comes from Mark 14, 53 through 65. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are in a series in which we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Some weeks that means looking at aspects of Jesus that are really popular in our culture, like the idea of Jesus as a great teacher. Other weeks that means looking at aspects of Jesus that are virtually unknown in our culture. But crucial for understanding him in his context, like Jesus is the true Israel or the true temple. But other weeks, we are looking at aspects of Jesus that are well-known in our culture, but rejected because they're seen as offensive, outdated religious myths. This week, we're looking what I think might be the most offensive aspect of Jesus of all. It's this idea of Jesus as judge. This provokes strong reactions in people um, right now. Maybe some of you are feeling a little anxious or cringing a little, like, ooh, is he really going to talk about this? Or maybe you're spiritually curious, but this is one of those things about religion and especially Christianity that just makes you furious, makes your blood boil. There are huge problems with this idea of Jesus as judge, so why talk about it? Why not just leave it in the dustbins of history where it belongs? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Let me mention two of the biggest, and I'm going to start with the easier one first. Um, one of the big reasons we can't ignore this topic of, of Jesus as judge is because Jesus talked about it all the time. If you love the idea of Jesus as a great teacher, well, this is one of the things he taught, which means that um, we either have to reject our idea of Jesus as a great teacher, or we have to grapple with what he said about this. 
Some of you may be thinking that's the easier uh, objection. <laughs> yeah, here's the harder one. Um, I think it's safe to say that there has never been a society in the history of the world more focused on justice than the one we live in. Think about all the, the, um, the various movements over the past several decades, from the civil rights movement, to women's lib, to the pro-life movement, to Black Lives Matter, to marriage equality, to uh, Me Too, to the current movement for transgender rights. Our, our culture is saturated in a concern for justice and outrage when justice is denied. Here's the question. If there is a God, and especially if there's a loving God, um, wouldn't we expect that God to be at least as concerned about justice as we are? And even more, how could we possibly worship a God who isn't at least as outraged against injustice as we are? These are not easy questions, and there are no easy answers, but there's a lot at stake here. So let's take a look at this passage and see three things this morning, okay? We're going to look first at God's passion for justice, second, our problem with judgment, and third, the one who provides both, okay? God's passion for justice, our problem with judgment, and the one who provides both, all right? First, let's look at God's passion for justice. And here's the scene. Jesus has just been arrested by the religious leaders, and now he's standing trial for his life. They have all these witnesses against Jesus, but none of their testimony agrees. So the high priest asks Jesus outright the question that's really on their minds. He says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, this word Messiah, that's a huge topic. We're going to talk about that next week. But we've already mentioned several times in this series that first century Jewish people were looking for a king called Messiah to come and rescue them from their enemies, specifically the Roman Empire. But here's the thing, they never expected that king to be anything more than human. So when the high priest calls uh, the Messiah the son of the blessed one, that's simply a, a way of referring to a human king who has favor with God. Now, Jesus answers the question. He says, I am the Messiah. And that right there would have been enough to have Jesus executed. Because even though claiming to be the Messiah was not a capital offense under Jewish law, it was considered treason under Roman law. But Jesus goes even further than that. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest hears this, he tears his clothes, which is a sign of profound shock and grief, and he cries out, blasphemy. It's very clear that the high priest understood exactly what Jesus was saying, and we need to understand it too. When, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, pretty much every historian agrees that was, um, Jesus constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. That phrase comes from Daniel chapter 7. So let's read a little bit of that to get the context. And by the way, um, Daniel 7 is, is a book that's written by the prophet Daniel. And in this passage, he has a vision. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, that's God, took his seat. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So here's the scene. God is sitting on his throne of judgment. But who's he judging? Daniel 7 is a, a history of all the empires of the world up until that point, and God is judging them. These empires are pictured as beasts that destroy and devour, and that's who God is judging. 
So in other words, not only is God judging individual people for their individual sins, God is judging all of the human systems of the world, all of the oppressive empires and evil regimes, and all of the evil, injustice, and suffering that they produce. This is the way God is portrayed throughout the Bible. He's a God who's passionate about justice. He's a God who's passionate about the rights of everybody, and especially a God who's passionate about rescuing the poor, the weak, the needy, and the oppressed. So for instance, read the book of Exodus. It's all about God rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt and pouring out judgment on Pharaoh. But it's not just all the other nations, it's Israel too. So if you read throughout the Bible, when Israel starts oppressing the poor in their own land, God pours out judgment on them too. Read the prophets, read Isaiah, read Amos. Friends, here's the point. Our modern world is passionate about justice. We cry out for justice, we cry out for human rights, especially for the poor and the oppressed. I mean, think about those movements we just mentioned Things like Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ rights. We're passionate about justice. Now, we saw last week that our modern vision of progress comes from the Bible, but it's the same thing with our modern passion for justice. The reason that we are so passionate about justice is because it's part of our Christian inheritance in this world. So, for instance, I was uh, watching a conversation online this past week amongst various scholars, one of whom is Tom Holland, a very famous historian, um, and I always feel like I have to say, not the famous Spider-Man actor. This Tom Holland is a famous historian. Um, and these scholars were uh, talking about the fact that Christians believe crazy stuff, namely the idea that Jesus rose physically from the dead. Crazy. It's kind of like on the same level as believing that your neighbors are secretly aliens from out of space. But then Tom Holland points out, and by the way, Tom Holland is not a Christian. He doesn't even know if he believes in God. He describes himself as a secular humanist, but he says, look, it's not as though secular liberals, whether atheist or agnostic, aren't equally capable of believing weird, mad things. Like what, Tom? He says, also very odd is the belief that human beings have rights. Most people in the West believe in human rights, but human rights don't exist objectively, and I think by that he means you can't prove them scientifically. He says, they're as fantastical as believing in angels. So where do we get this idea of human rights? Tom Holland goes on to say that the origins of human rights are very specifically rooted in Christian theology, theology. And then he just starts going through the history of how 11th and 12th century lawyers were looking at the Bible and how it calls the rich to provide um, shelter, food, water, and clothing for the poor. And these lawyers deduced from that that, oh, that means that poor people have rights. And if poor people have rights, Tom Holland goes on to say, this sets in train this incredibly fertile notion that human beings have rights. Friend, we get our idea, our passion for justice, our idea about human rights from the Bible. So here's this God in Daniel chapter 7, and he's passionate about justice. He pronounces judgment on evil and war and violence and oppression. He's passionate about every human being has equal worth, equal rights, and especially this is a God who stands up for the rights of the poor, the weak, the needy, and the oppressed. But how does this God do that? Well, that's where we go back to the rest of Daniel chapter 7, and specifically the part that Jesus quotes. 
It says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is the son of man? He's a divine figure who sits on God's throne, shares God's glory, exercises God's dominion, and rules over God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, that's me. Are you starting to see why the high priest tore his clothes? And by the way, this isn't the only place that Jesus says stuff like this. In Matthew 7, we looked at that the first week of this series. It's Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. That day, he's talking about the day of judgment, and he's picturing himself as the one who sits on the throne of judgment. Or in Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. His glorious throne. When Jesus refers to himself as the God of the universe who sits on the throne of judgment, Jesus is affirming our passion for justice and saying, the only reason you have that passion is because you get it from me, because I am the God of justice. And that leads to our next point. We've just looked at God's passion for justice, but that leads to the second thing, which is our problem with judgment. And here's what I mean. Um, We look out at the world, we see all kinds of wrongs, and everything inside of us cries out, not just for justice, but for judgment. For judgment. Because nothing arouses our outrage more than seeing evil carried out with impunity. What does impunity mean? Impunity means exempt from punishment. The only thing that makes us angrier than evil itself is when we see evil going unpunished. And I can prove the point in one sentence. Dolores Jane Umbridge, senior undersecretary to the Minister of Magic and High Inquisitor of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. If you have ever read the Harry Potter books or watched the movies, you know that Dolores Umbridge, (laughs) your blood just started to boil because she is the most vile, wicked, and despicable character in the whole story. One critic I read said Voldemort might be the most evil character, but Dolores Umbridge is the most hated. She's cruel and enjoys it. She tortures children for fun. She's racist and proud of it. On top of that, she covers the whole thing up with saccharine sweet giggles and kittens in teacups and frilly pink dresses. The reason we are so angry about her is because not only is Dolores Umbridge doing all this evil stuff, she's getting away with it. She's acting with impunity. And and, and everything inside of us, every fiber of our being, wants to see judgment come down on her. So in the movie, by the time she's finally carried away by the centaurs, everything inside of us just wants to leap up, pump our fist in the air, and say, yes, she got what was coming to her. We need that. Nothing arouses our outrage more than seeing evil carried out with impunity. Now, I just gave you a fictional example, but the tragedy is that our world is filled with examples that are all too real and too horrifying, like church leaders covering up for um, other leaders who are accused of sexual assault, or um, military covering up for soldiers who commit torture, 
or governments getting away with corruption, or police officers getting away with murder. Friends, here's our problem with judgment. We have this deep-seated instinct that, that needs to see evil judged. And that's very easy to see when we look at the world around us. It's very difficult to see when we look at ourselves. Especially since I think it's um, fair to say, I have no doubt that nobody here is at the level of a Dolores Umbridge or a Hitler or an axe murderer or a rapist or people who let their dogs poop on your lawn or any of the other things we say. Now that's really evil and that really deserves judgment. In other words, we have this special category of evil that deserves judgment, but none of us are in that category. On top of that, we have this picture of God and his judgment, this very traditional religious picture that says, oh, God's this angry old man who's always exploding in temper tantrums at things that are so minor and trivial compared to real evil, things that really deserve judgment. I mean, this is our problem with judgment. What do we do with all of this? Well, this is where the story of Peter comes in to help us. If you remember what we read, at the very beginning of the passage, right after Jesus is, um, is accused and, and taken inside the house of the high priest, it says that Peter um, followed him from a distance, but then he sat down in the courtyard outside of the house, warming himself by the fire. And so, we didn't read the whole story because it's um, so long. But if you know the story, right after Jesus is condemned, the story shifts back to the courtyard outside of the house to that infamous scene where three times Peter is confronted, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times, each of those times, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. In fact, the last time, he calls down curses on Jesus. It's a betrayal of the very worst kind. And what makes it even worse is that just a few hours before this, Peter made a really big deal about how even if all the other disciples abandoned Jesus, he would never do something like that. In fact, there's this little detail in the Gospel of Mark that doesn't show up in the gospel, uh, the other Gospel accounts. It says that Jesus, I mean, Peter was emphatic about this. He was emphatic. You know, it's interesting, there are all these little eyewitness details in the Gospel of Mark, which um, support a lot of the ancient evidence that says that the Gospel of Mark was actually written according to um, Peter's personal memories. That means that Peter himself is telling us that he was emphatic about this. He made a big deal about this. He said to Jesus, look, I'm not like those other guys. Even if they all abandon you, I would never do something like that. Peter had a very high opinion of himself. Here's what this means for us. Do you have a high opinion of yourself? Do you ever look out at the world around you, clutch your pearls and say, ooh, I'm not like those other people. I would never do anything like that. Peter's story is showing us that we never know what we're really capable of. And that we could look around at the world and say there's certain things I would never do something like that until we do. For instance, John Steinbeck, in his famous novel, East of Eden, there's a character named Kathy. Um, Kathy burns her parents' house down while they're in it, and that's just the beginning of what she does. It gets worse from there. Here's what John Steinbeck says about her in the novel. He says, Kathy was what I have called a monster, but we are capable of many things in all directions of great virtues and great sins, and who in their mind has not probed the dark water? Maybe we all have in us a secret pond where evil things germinate 
and grow strong. But this pond is fenced, and the swimming brood climbs up, only to fall back. Might it not be that in the dark pools of some people, the evil grows strong enough to wriggle over the fence and swim free? Would not such a person be our monster, and are we not related to them in our hidden water? Friends, what's in your hidden water? We all have a tendency to divide the world into the good people and the bad people, and of course we put ourselves in the good category. But this story is showing us that Jesus isn't the only one on trial here. Peter's on trial too because all of life is a trial. And when the heat gets turned up, it reveals what's in our hidden water because it reveals what we're really living for. Peter would have said, oh, I'm living for Jesus. He was emphatic about it. But, you know, and I'm not Peter's psychoanalyst and I'm certainly not the Holy Spirit, so I can't tell you what Peter was really living for. Maybe it was um, security, like I don't want to die. Maybe it was approval or recognition. I don't know. But whatever it was, at that moment, it wasn't Jesus. And at that moment, his hidden water jumped the fence. It was a heinous betrayal. It was the very worst moral failure of his life, and he never saw it coming. Has your hidden water ever judged, uh, jumped the fence? Friends, here's where we're at. God's passion for justice means that he is committed to setting right the deepest wrongs of the world. But our problem with judgment means it's so easy for us to see it in everyone else, but almost impossible for us to see it in ourselves. So what's the solution to that? Well, that leads to our last point. We've looked at God's passion for justice. We've just seen our problem with judgment. But lastly, we need to see the one who provides both. You know, the, one of the most important things about this story is the way it brings together um, what's happening to Jesus inside the house and what's happening with Peter outside of the house. I mean, think about the picture here. Jesus is on trial, but so is Peter. Jesus is innocent, but Peter's guilty. Jesus is falsely accused, but denies nothing. Peter is called to stand up for the truth, but denies everything. Most importantly of all, Jesus, the innocent one, is condemned, but Peter, the guilty one, goes free. Friends, this is more than just artistic storytelling. This is the gospel. Because we live in a world that is oppressed and in bondage to evil. And everything inside of us cries out for justice. We cry out for everything that's wrong to be set right, for evil to be punished and condemned. The problem is we all participate in the evil of this world because we all live for something other than God, at least at some time or another. Where do we think the evil actually comes from? You know, if there is no God, then why are we even complaining about evil? Remember what Tom Holland said. There's no objective scientific basis for human rights, but if that's the case, there is no objective scientific basis for evil. But if there is a God and we live for something other than God, then we twist and distort that thing. We, we take a good thing and turn it into a God, but that God turns into a devil and it starts twisting and distorting us, which means that our real problem with judgment is how is God supposed to destroy evil in the world without destroying us? Well, this story is a foretaste of the answer because remember the scene here. Jesus is on trial for his life. He's standing before the bar of earthly judgment 
And all the judgment, all the wrath, all the guilty verdict that comes down on Jesus, the guilty one, innocent one, but Peter, the guilty one, goes free. Friends, this is pointing us to the cross. But here's the weird thing. Remember what Jesus just said. He said, I'm the God of the universe who sits on the throne of judgment. All of heaven. I sit on the throne of judgment. Jesus is the one who pronounces judgment. Jesus is the one who dispenses the final verdict on all humanity. And yet here's Jesus on the cross, and he's standing the ultimate trial before the ultimate bar of judgment, the throne of heaven. How can that be? Do you realize what this means? This means that the judge of the universe was judged for us. Because on the cross, the judgment, the condemnation, the ultimate guilty verdict, it all came down on Jesus, the innocent one, so that not just Peter could be set free, but so you and I could be set free too. And not just set free from the verdict of condemnation, but set free from the very bondage of evil itself. Friends, here's what all of this means. You put all together, this means that God's judgment is not his desire to destroy you, but his desire to destroy the evil that's destroying you, to set you free from evil. That is a very different way of thinking about judgment, but this is the gospel. Uh, Fleming Rutledge is a uh, famous preacher, writer, and outstanding theologian. In her book on the crucifixion, she puts this perfectly. She says this, God did not change his mind about us on account of the cross. He did not need to have his mind changed. He was never opposed to us. It is not his opposition to us, but our opposition to him that had to be overcome. And the only way it could be overcome was from God's side by God's initiative. That's the purpose of judgment because that's what the cross is for, to overcome not God's opposition to us, but our opposition to God. God's judgment is not his desire to destroy us, but his desire to destroy the evil that's destroying us. Friends, let me bring us to a close this morning by offering you just a couple of thoughts by way of application. And the first one is this. Um, God's judgment on Jesus transforms us personally. Do you realize how amazing it is that we even have this story about Peter? How did this story end up in the Bible? The only way is if Peter himself told us about it. Peter himself was so free about the greatest failure, moral failure of his life, that he could bring it all out into the light and let everybody see this about him. Do you realize how amazing that is? Think about that. I mean, if you're trying to start, this is a very cynical view, but it's what, you know, our, our culture says, look, they were just trying to start this new religion, and they were making up all sorts of stuff. If you're trying to start a new religion, and you're one of the main leaders, would you include a story that shows you at your absolute worst? Not in a million years. The only reason we know about this is because Peter himself told us about it. That means that Peter is so free, so open about the greatest failure of his life that it's because he's no longer defined by what he does, neither his greatest success or his deepest failure. He's free from that. Would you like this kind of freedom? Listen, in our world, look, our human tendency is to be driven and defined by our performance. That means if you do well, hey, then you feel good about yourself for a little bit because there's always that cloud of anxiety that's chasing you around, haunting you and whispering to you, don't screw up. And when we do screw up, not when, but if, not if, but when, I mean, when we do screw up, we feel horrible about ourselves. 
Just like Peter, down come the curses. Down comes the condemnation. But look at Peter. Jesus doesn't condemn him, but neither does he condemn himself. He's free. He's totally open to bring his, all of his story out into the light. There's no fear, no shame, no condemnation, no contempt. He brings it all out into the light. Why? Because he is not defined by what he does or by what he fails to do. He's defined by what Jesus did for him on the cross. And you can be too. God's judgment transforms us personally. But second, God's judgment transforms us socially. It, do you realize that... Um, that the more this reality comes into our life, that it's telling us that our real enemy is not each other. Our real enemy is the sin, evil, and death that's destroying us. That changes the way you see other people, especially people that you would be inclined to call your enemy. That means that instead of condemning them, you realize you're no better than them, and instead of fighting them, you start fighting against the thing that's destroying them. I always think about um, the second movie of The Hunger Games when I think about this. Remember the story, The Hunger Games is about the evil empire, Pan Am, and it makes all these uh, people from the outlying districts, they're called tributes, they force tributes to come and fight to the death in an arena as a punishment for their former rebellion. And, and the tributes are trained to see each other instinctively, to see each other as enemies. But in the second movie, they band together and form an alliance and um, come up with a secret plot to rescue Katniss Everdeen, the heroine, to start a rebellion and to overthrow the evil empire. But as they're getting ready to go into the arena that time, you remember what they keep telling each other? Remember who the real enemy is. Remember who the real enemy is. They have to remind each other. They have to fight hard against their instinct to see each other as the enemy so that they can fight their real enemy, which is the evil empire of Pan Am. Now, in the movie, the evil empire is composed of other human beings. But in our world, the real enemy is not other people. The real enemy is the evil that's seeking to destroy us, but which Jesus conquered on the cross. And the more that reality comes into your life, the more that transforms you into somebody who can fight against real injustice, somebody who can work for real social transformation, and yet it transforms you also into somebody who can weep for the Dolores Umbridges of the world. Because God's desire for you has become your desire for them. God's judgment is not his desire to destroy us, but to destroy the evil that's destroying us. Friends, the gospel transforms us personally. It sets you free from personal condemnation. The gospel transforms us socially. It changes us into people who can work for real social change. Are you experiencing that freedom and that transformation? Behold, the judge who was judged for you. It's all yours in him. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning for completely overturning all the false, twisted, distorted notions and pictures we have of you as this angry old guy who just wants to hate us and destroy us. Lord, we praise you that you love us so much that even when your wrath is turned against us, it's turned against us in love because you want to set us free from evil. You want to set the whole world free 
from evil. That's what your judgment is for. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the judge of the universe who took that judgment in order to set us free from judgment, to set us free from condemnation and fear, and to set us free to become your servants in this world who can work for your justice in this world. Help us more and more to appropriate this reality, Lord, that we might become more and more your servants of justice in this world. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.